invite you, you can open your copy of God's Word to Exodus 18, and we'll get there uh, momentarily. I want to add my thanks uh, to those that already had given it uh, for the crew Friday. We had 30-plus uh, that were here, and fantastic, uh, just the cooperation. I don't think anyone got hurt. I don't think anyone was overly strained and exhausted. I think they're here. Um, what, a, what a fantastic accomplishment. Uh, and also, thank the Lord for shrink wrap. I mean, those, those six chairs were bound together, you know, tight. It was made the work good. Um, also, I, I want to get at this point, because we'll, the service will continue with the table and so forth, but I do want to thank the Grace Choir, Grace Handbells, um, for their ministry in this last ministry season. It is, uh, I miss you all when next week comes. Uh, and, uh, but I, I'm grateful that you're able to have the break and the rest and uh, get your own little kind of Sabbath uh, within the ministry year and season. David in First Chronicles 15 instituted the singers, instituted the choirs. And so this is extremely biblical uh, to be able to have choral ministry and to lead the congregation, processing us, uh, assisting us into the presence of the Lord in a unique and a distinctive way. You've heard me make several allusions to this, but there is a close connection between the prophetic ministry in Scripture and music and instrumentation and singing. And I suspect that's really the kind of thing we should understand about the gift of prophecy in the New Testament it has to do with the musical uh, expression of the truths of the faith that we believe. That's my take on it. So anyway, great to have you prophets among us. Especially thankful for Sarah and Anne and their leadership. They, they select wonderful repertoire and lead, train, disciple uh, along the way in extraordinary ways and um, can't really say enough of thanks and gratitude to you two ladies. Anne uh, helps tremendously and really carries the, the lead on planning our services and putting them together and I get to see how they're crafted and, uh, before they go out. And uh, you know, I, I don't know that I ever have had to correct anything we always share you know back and forth how can we do things but just it's great to have the that kindred spirit and uh, same mind thinking about worship and we're not about showcasing we're not about entertaining we want to engage all of us in in this worship expression and experience we're going to talk about worship a bit in this passage that we come to this morning. So hence I, my long segue into, into the theme of the passage. Um, as you're, again, you're, you're slowly opening your Bibles to Exodus 18. Years, years ago, probably close to 25, 27 years ago, I went through a ministry profile with a 
connected to the church that I was serving back then. And um, it, it, was to sh it was to manifest, highlight areas of strength and weakness, but mostly strengths, gifts, talents, inclinations. And oddly, and this was all ministry profile kind of thing, but uniquely, maybe better than oddly, well, it might be odd, I, I rated high in colors and textures. <laughs> and the, uh, the district superintendent who was, you know, then cross-checking me, you know, doing the, the after-exam review, he says, what in the world are you going to do with that <laughs> in pastoral ministry? He said, you, well, I won't tell you the whole story. <laughs> And I, but as he said that, I, we, we happened to be sitting in, in the little sanctuary of that building, and I, I looked up at the room, and I looked around at the walls, and, well, duh, I didn't say it out loud. <laughs> you know, at least, at least the heart may not have been right, but the, the mouth was okay that time. Like, look, we have, we have banners we have lights in the right places. We have a platform that has multiple levels um, that, yeah, you can see, but I can get close. And um, Who do you think did that? You can hear a little tone in my voice, right? It was all in my head, all in my head, right? Like, worship. Um church ministry, pastoral ministry, yes, Paul admonishes Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. That is, proclaim the gospel. That's what it means. Proclaim the gospel. Tell people about Jesus from the word. Um, but to what end? And to what purpose? That they might become worshipers of the triune God who has come to save them, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our ultimate end game is worship. We, we will not always be evangelizing, you know, in the sense of seeing the lost one or the, the, the unbeliever converted and born again. That, that will have a completion of our work and our ministry so there's got to be something more to why we're here as important as that part of the mission is it is about seeing them come to the throne of God and to come to the banqueting table whose banner over us is love and worship the king of kings and the lord of lords this is why we're here, and this is why we proclaim. This is why we go from here to tell people about Jesus. This is why we have five-day clubs. To see people become worshipers of the God who made them and has redeemed them. So Exodus 18, uh, we're, we're going to look at this, the next paragraph. We'll pick it up in verse 8 uh, and go through uh, 
verse 12. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh, the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with his people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, the Hebrews have been delivered from Egypt by the hand of the Lord out of the hand of Pharaoh. They're being formed into a nation. And this year uh, will be the the 75th anniversary of the new nation, inaugurated in 19, was it 48? And um, it's, it's quite significant. But the real birth, the, the real purpose of the nation began back here. And they're being formed into, the, into a nation, and the formation begins immediately as we see this birthing in chapter 17 and 18. The Lord forms the nation under a leadership, particularly Moses. And in this development of the narratives, chapter 17 and 18, we have four movements, at least as I've identified it, uh, of leadership. The leader goes to war uh, against the Amalekites. Then the leader bears witness, in this case to his father-in-law, extended family. Now we'll see that the leader goes to worship. And next Lord's Day, Lord willing, um, we'll look at the leader goes to work. So the leader is going to... uh, bear testimony to the work of the Lord and all that God has done for his people. And that naturally then leads to worship. There's a response to the story, to the narrative. What has God done? Someone gives testimony and praise the Lord. Blessed be the Lord leading in worship. Jethro, we were introduced to earlier, and Jethro is, Jethro is not a Hebrew. Jethro is not an Israelite. He's a Midianite. And this sets the contrast between the Amalekites who heard about what God has done and become belligerent and then Jethro, the Midianite, who hears about what God has done and becomes a believer. This is a contrast uh, and there are two ways to respond to the great works of God. You can believe or disbelieve. You can accept or reject Now, Moses' uh, father-in-law is indeed a priest. Back in chapter 2, Exodus 2, verse 16, uh, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they drew water. And one of those daughters, Moses Moses falls in love with, and and he marries. This is Jethro. He He is a Gentile priest. Not exactly like Melchizedek, but a similar kind of situation. Non Jew, non Hebrew, non Israelite. God fear. Now Moses himself, uh, in response to the to the works of God, worships God. Back in chapter seventeen, verses fifteen and sixteen, this is his response as well. Moses built an altar and called the name of it, "The Lord is my banner," and he explains why. He, this is what 
the leader of God's people does. He worships and he leads the people in worship. The shepherd is responsible for this. And that is the pastoral work, the shepherd work, is to lead the people into the green pastures, to come to the still waters, to come to the table of the Lord in the presence of the world, in the presence of the enemies, and to dwell there and to commune with the God who saved them. That's pastoral work. Many, many other things culturally within the church and within the world would add things to the work of the shepherd, to the work of pastor. In fact, redefine what shepherd is. But this is what it is to lead the people into the presence of God and worship. Well, there's a few identifiers that we can, we can look at. The first is worship is by one who rejoices. Verse 9, Jethro rejoiced. He rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. Isn't that interesting the way it said? All the good that the Lord had done to Israel. We, we might say for Israel. It may not be such a hard distinction to make here, but it is fascinating the way that it is, and God did good to them. And Jethro rejoices. This is a unique word that's here, and it's an overwhelming sense of joy. It's a, a flooding, an overpouring sense of joy that, that exudes into, well, exudes doesn't go into, does it? Exudes comes out of, but it permeates the whole of a person, a whole of a person. And it's not necessarily giddiness, as we might think of, of joy and happiness and gladness. It, it could be, but it's more so a solemnity. It's a godliness. It's a, it's a sobriety. It's a sense of, ah, oh, the work is complete, and we can rest. It is related to the word peace this idea of joy. We are to delight in the Lord in all the good things that he has done. And this, the good things, becomes liturgical language, becomes worship language, becomes covenantal language for the people of God. And it's the phrase, the Lord is good, specifically. The Lord is good, used eight times in the Bible. And it's related to our senses. Um, Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's good. Your portion is good. Uh, this one comes in uh, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 24. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. Your portion. He's good. Taste and see the goodness of the Lord. Now, Peter would quote that earlier uh, psalm, Psalm 34, verse 8. Peter quotes it in his, his epistle. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He says, since you have tasted that the Lord is good. And there's a play on words in the New Testament. Um, what, what's Jesus' last name? Oh, good, nobody responded too quickly. Uh, it's a fallacy. He doesn't really have a last name. It's his title, Christ. Christ. And it, sometimes it's Jesus Christ, and oftentimes it's Christ Jesus. The word good 
that's used to describe Jesus, in, as Peter writes his epistle, is Christos. Christos. He, he says, know that Christ, Christos, is Christos. Beautiful. You're like, Todd, you're, you've kind of lost it. Like, well, maybe I have. But I want to show you the artistry and the beauty and the goodness that is within the text itself. And even how the apostles have written this down in a beautiful artistic way, a literary way. If we would just open our eyes to see what God is doing and how he's revealing himself to us. Christ is good. And it's a word that, that depicts uh, a taste, a beauty. And this is the reason for joy. He is our portion. He is our satisfaction of all senses of life. And there is a, indeed a relationship between rejoicing and gratitude. Uh, Psalm 97, verse 12, puts this in, in a poetic way. It's a parallel. Psalm 97, verse 12 says, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his name. The two thoughts go together. How is it that we rejoice? By giving thanks. How is it we give thanks? By rejoicing. The two fit together. Philippians 4 Verses 4 through 6, Paul puts the same ideas together. In verse 4 of Philippians 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Two very strong imperatives. Uh, frightening. Rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice always. What? Always? Yes. Even when you're carrying a stack of six chairs and the shrink rack bursts. Rejoice! I don't... This came to my mind, sorry. Rejoice! But then verse 6, as he's, he's gone on to talk about how we pray and bring things to the Lord, he says, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to the Lord. Rejoice with thanksgiving. This is, this is so, to me, earth-shattering. Pastor Bill, he knows this. This is, this is his kind of life verse, right? And he's been a big benefit and encouragement for me in this area. Rejoice in the Lord and give thanks. Well, this is what a worshiper does. This is what Jethro sets in his, his first response to the testimony of God's work of salvation. Uh, secondly, verse 10 goes on to say, bless the Lord. He blessed the Lord. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, delivered you from under the hand of the Egyptians. It's a beautiful word, blessing. We tend to think of blessing as something only God does to us rather than us to God. But I don't know, if you carry the New International Version, your translation will say simply praise. Praise the Lord. Praise be to the Lord. And that's a good, a good rendering idea of the word. But this, this, this is, um, if we render it into the, the New Testament language that's repeated again and again and again, um, well, let me tell you the Old Testament word, Baruch. Baruch. You know a guy named Baruch? He's, he's a, he was a cohort of uh, Jeremiah. 
his buddy, Baruch. Blessed. Barach is the verb form. Barach, blessed be the Lord. You probably know someone by that name too. Barach, blessed be the Lord. And, and in the New Testament word, as they bring it over, it's eulageo, eulogy, a good word. We speak a good word about the Lord God. Well, let's summarize this. It is still something we do in the New Testament as New Covenant people. We bless the Lord. And that is, is a core essential of worship. Let's just cut to the chase and we'll go to Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 7. Revelation 5, uh, verse 12. The, the development of the, the chorus of worship, the symphony of praise uh, throughout these chapters. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13 goes on to say, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Worship comes again in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 12 in the heavenly host say, Amen. Amen means true. It's true. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The Lamb upon the throne and God. God and the Lamb. Co-equal. Co-eternal. Co-regents. Both receiving blessing. Jesus is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the one who ascended to the right hand of the Father. Jesus is God. Worthy is He to receive the same blessing as the Father. Well, we rejoice in the Lord. We bless the Lord. And we, I do need to keep going. Sorry. We also confess the Lord. Verse, verse 11. I know. I know. Our words would be, I believe, as we said in the creed, right? I know that the Lord is greater, or Yahweh is greater than Ra. Yahweh is greater than all other gods that are supposed to be gods. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. I know now, I have seen the hand of God dealing with His people, providing for His people, fulfilling His promise He made to Abraham. I have seen what God has done. I have heard the good news of God's redemption. And now he confesses. Jethro believes. He had been a God-fearer, and now he really knows the personal God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is Yahweh. He is the Lord, the great I Am. And Jethro comes to make this confession with a firm conviction in the one true living God. All other Self-acclaimed gods are false and are not. This is the one true living God. The Lord defeated all the gods of Egypt, evident in the plagues that had decimated them. We know who God is by what He has done, and He reveals Himself in creation, in redemption, and in His Word. And worship rehearses the narrative of God's revealing and redeeming work. Now, we, when we use the word confession, we most often think and assume the negative part of confession, confessing our sins, and that's important. Matthew 3, 6. 
they were baptized in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. One, one of the public ways in which we confess our sins is the waters of baptism. It's a public confession. I have sinned. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So it is important. And we could probably do more with this. But there's also the positive confession, as we did the confession of faith. What is it you positively believe? I'm a, I'm a professor. I'm a confessor of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it becomes the basis for that forgiveness that we know. John puts it this way, and um, the class has begun, 1 John, but we'll skip ahead to chapter 4. 1 John 4 Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. The positive confession that Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. Hebrews 4, 14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that is Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast our confession. So we would do well to confess our faith together. And we do it in song. And as, as we spoke, the songs that are selected are, are songs that rehearse the faith and bolster our faith. There's the objective reality. This is what the faith is. And there's the subjective, I yield to it. I believe. Worship rejoices, worship blesses, worship confesses, worship sacrifices. Verse 12, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. The whole burnt offering. You notice that it's singular, a burnt offering. One sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. But then there are multiple sacrifices praise, thanksgiving, fellowship, multiple sacrifices that go along after we've experienced the, the wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all our sin. How can we describe it? Well, we give more sacrifices. It's the singular, the whole burnt offering, sometimes called the Holocaust, everything is up in smoke, bones and all. The Holocaust offering for sin. Then come the other offerings. Now, Jesus has satisfied, as we, we've gone through the, the book of Hebrews some time back, and repeatedly we were reminded that Jesus is a once and for all time sacrifice to end all other cultic sacrifices, all other blood sacrifices, all other grain offerings. His satisfied it all. Okay, then what do we get to do with sacrifice? Well, here's just a, a sampling list of New Testament, New Covenant ideas of sacrifice. Now, there's, there's probably more, but these are very uh, overt when we look for the word offering and sacrifice. We bring the sacrifice of praise, Hebrews 13, 15. We, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices for holiness and godliness, Romans 12, verse 1. We, we bring a, a, a sacrifice of love, yeah, love isn't just a 
a wonderful emotion, second-hand emotion. Love is sacrifice for the good of the other. Mark chapter 12, verse 33. Paul talks about, about the offerings that are gathered at the church on the first day of the week as benevolence for the, the saints in Jerusalem that are suffering uh, as believers in part because of famine and in part because of persecution. And the churches in the rest of the world gather resources and send to help them but also to bring, bring, bring support for Paul as he goes around uh, to ministry in his missionary journeys. That is also considered a, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice pleasing to the Lord, Philippians 4.18. So when you bring your envelope and you stick the envelope in, in the, uh, uh, I was going to say bucket, but it's, what do we call that? It's not a basket, it's a, not a bucket, it's a box. And it was a bee. In the box, it is, it is a sacrificial offering unto the Lord. It, it's, it's, it's very informal. It's very casual now these days, isn't it? You walk by and put it in the box. But in your heart and in your mind, as you're making it out and putting it in the envelope, and as you're even in the action putting it in, you, your mind can say, this, Lord, I'm bringing to you as an offering. May it be fragrant in your sight. Gospel service and ministry itself, 2 Timothy 4.16. Paul says, I am being poured out as a drink offering. These, these are ways in which we worship God today. The sacrifice unto the Lord. Finally, 12 goes on, uh, the second half of verse 12. They, they did those burnt offerings, those sacrifices, and then comes Aaron, and the elders of Israel to do what? To eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God, before God. Wow. They got to eat in the presence of God. To be honest, I'm, I'm, it, 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 it's a bit ominous to consider. I mean, I know what it is to go to a fancy restaurant and know that I don't really belong there. And you sit down, and you're like, okay, well, we've got to remember my etiquette. Which fork first? And you look at the people over there. You know, when you're in the presence of, you know, more worthy people, it can be a bit unnerving, be a bit humbling. Can you imagine? Can you imagine feasting, banqueting in the presence of God? Well, that's what we're going to do in a few moments. We, we still feast in the presence of the Lord. We still come to the banqueting table, His banner over us is love. We, we still come to the table in the presence of the enemies. We're, we're in the middle of the world, but we have this table that God has prepared for us. We still. The, the covenant meal was a fellowship offering. So, you know, we, we spend in our Protestantism a lot of time on the sin offering, the sin offering, making atonement for sin, and, and that is extremely important, and we don't want to diminish that at all, but it is, we don't stay there. We don't stay at the sin offering. We, we don't stay at the cross. We get to the resurrection. 
and we get to come to the table of the Lord. Uh, the Old Testament sacrifices began much the way we do, and we'll, we'll talk about this when we get into in more Exodus 20 and following. But the culmination of the, of the whole sacrificial service was getting to eat together in the presence of the Lord. Yes, that whole law, that whole burnt offering, the worshiper would put their head on the head of that sacrificial lamb and as the throat is slit, you're identifying with the death penalty for your sin. And that whole thing is burnt up completely, gone. Just like your sin is gone. And when that's taken care of, then there's another offering, the fellowship offering, which this is alluding to, and you, the worshiper, you get to partake of that one. You get to enjoy eating with God. What an honor. What a privilege that God invites you to his table. It's, it's as if King, King David would invite certain guests to come and sit at his table. Remember the governor, Nehemiah, would, would have those who came and sat at his table. You, dear child of God, the one who has trusted Jesus, the Lamb of God for the forgiveness of sins, he now invites you to the table to linger there, to dwell there, and to fellowship with him, united with him. And we get to do this again and again and again and again until Jesus comes. And this, this is, in a sense, the rehearsal dinner. And, and this is the wedding rehearsal. We're rehearsing the narrative of God's redemptive acts and works in the order of worship. And it always culminates at the table, at a meal. A barbecue. Can you imagine? Well, this is the Old Testament pattern, and it becomes the pattern for the New Testament as well. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. The breaking of bread. Devoted to this act of worship. And then, you're like, well, okay, every time? Well, Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, it, the, it, it pretty well seems like every first day of the week the church got together to break bread. Yeah. It, it, it's... it's uh, oh. it's a sad development that in the evangelical church of the West that there is so little experience of the Lord's table of the love feast of the Lord's supper to eat together is to share in life together to say we are Koinonia, we are in common value together, common life together. To affirm one another as a member 
as an inheritor of the household and the kingdom of God. And God invites us into that reality. So, yes, we have New Testament identities. We talked about the breaking of bread. In 2 Peter 2.13, it's called a feast. In Jude chapter 12, it's called a love feast. Not chapter 12, verse 12. There's only one chapter in Jude. You didn't catch me quick enough. I make huge mistakes. I, I so am intimidated by this YouTube thing because I know I make so many mistakes. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.21 is called the table of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11.20, the Lord's Supper. It is, it is, in fact, the consummation, the culmination of all of redemptive history. Revelation 19, verse 9, we will come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Until then, he keeps inviting more people to the wedding ceremony. Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and will eat with him and he with me. This is for gals too. It's just a generic way. Christ invites you to come. Trust him as the complete sin offering. Died for sins on that cross so that you don't need to. In your place, he died. In your place, he rose. In your place, he lives. In your place, he prays for you before the Father, always affirming you, always building, always lifting you, and inviting you to be united with him and dwell with him. Well, let's put all this together. Uh, the works and the ways of the Lord produce a witness that results in worship. The worshiper rejoices in the Lord, blesses the Lord, confesses the Lord, sacrifices to the Lord, and eats with the Lord. Worship culminates in a, a covenantal fellowship meal together. And the meal expresses a unity with the Lord who promises himself to be the provision of his people. Would you taste and see that the Lord is so, Father, we do thank you for this glimpse of worship as, uh, uh, as small of a glimpse as it is. We're enthralled with the vocabulary, with the emotion, with the, the sense of, of union with you. The awe that indeed you would come among us a fallen creation, fallen creatures. And not only come among us, but you, you would make a way to bring us and restore us into fellowship with you. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you for the body of Christ that is that way to you. And so we come to partake of him. We do it now with the hand, the eye, the taste of faith. Change us, Lord.
and fold us into your kingdom family. Bring us near, Lord. The realities of the cross bring us near. And the realities of its effect. Life everlasting. Amen.